I think, first of all, we need to think far more holistically and comprehensively about the mission of the church. The role of the church is actually to transform society, not only to uh, go out and preach to one or two people and the rest of the time to take care of its own business within the walls of the church, but how is the church present in society in a way that transforms? My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as global ambassador and ministry director for Langham. Today, Chris talks with Martin Akkad, a theological leader in Lebanon, who received his PhD training with support from Langham. He's taught at Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Beirut, where he founded and directs the Institute of Middle East Studies. Martin is a sought-off speaker, thinker, and writer on Islam. Middle Eastern Christianity and Christian-Muslim relations. Through their conversation, you'll get a sense of Lebanon, its beauty and its diversity, with 18 different religious denominations, all of them Christian or Muslim, with a country two-thirds the size of Connecticut. It's a fascinating conversation. So fascinating, we present it to you in two parts. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and today I want you to come with me to Lebanon. Lebanon is a country that I've visited quite often. It's a beautiful country there in the Middle East, right at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was, of course, famous even in biblical times for the cedars of Lebanon, which were there in the Temple of Solomon and indeed in Solomon's Palace, and also for the wines of Lebanon that are referred to uh, very positively in Hosea chapter 14, and I've tasted some of them as well. But as I'm sure you know, today it is a very troubled country indeed, and we shall hear more about that from my guest today, who is there in Beirut itself, the capital city of Lebanon, and that is Dr. Martin Akkad. So welcome to you, Martin. Thank you very much, Chris, and uh, it's a real pleasure to uh, join you on, the, on this uh, conversation. Great. Now, uh, Dr. Martin Akkad uh, is based there in Beirut at the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, or ABTS as we know it, uh, where he teaches, uh, he's actually the uh, Associate Professor of Islamic Studies, teaches Middle Eastern Christianity and Christian-Muslim relations, 
not only there at ABTS in Beirut, but also at Fuller Seminary, where he serves as Affiliate Associate Professor of Islamic Studies. He's also the founder and director of the Institute for Middle East Studies and a number of other projects that he has initiated that we will talk about later. Uh, Martin is also a prolific writer, editor and blogger, and we'll come to some of those also. But first of all, Martin, let's let's talk a bit about yourself. Uh, so why don't you tell us something about how you perhaps came to faith, about your family, and about how God has uh, prepared you and your heart for the ministry that you now occupy there in Lebanon. Well, I uh, grew up in Lebanon. Uh, I was born in Lebanon, grew up in Lebanon. Uh, I come from a mixed uh, cultural heritage. Uh, my father uh, was Lebanese. My mother is Swiss, uh, French-speaking Swiss. Uh, but I've uh, always felt uh, very Lebanese in my heart because I was born here, grew up here. Um, I also come from a family of uh, three generations of pastors. So my grandfather um, had uh, come to the Protestant faith uh, from an Orthodox background in Beirut and became pastor and the director or general secretary of the Bible Society. Uh, my father was a pastor as well and uh, also became general secretary of the Bible Society. Then I have uh, a sibling and a, and a brother-in-law and a few other people in the family who are <laughs> pastors. I'm not a pastor myself, but I grew up in this environment, first of all, an environment of faith, but also an environment that was uh, very attached to the Word of God. Uh, so the Bible Society, the importance of the written word, uh, was always uh, very uh, present in my background while growing up. So I would describe my my coming to faith as a process of journeying uh, and uh, understanding first uh, intuitively the love of God uh, as a child, uh, you know, he, uh, hearing uh, or listening to my parents reading the Bible to us every evening, uh, praying together. Uh, I grew up very much with uh, a, a biblical worldview forming uh, as I was growing up. Um, you know, I had my experiences of uh, giving my life to Jesus a few times uh, out of fear and trembling at, uh, uh, at summer camps and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, I would say that I really uh, got a sense of uh, a strong sense of calling to uh, the ministry of the church when I was about 14, uh, and I uh, started uh, serving uh, in the church. Um, I then was part of a Christian heavy metal band, um, and uh, many pe many young people came to faith uh, through our ministry. Uh, mainly from uh, uh, subcultures of uh, drugs and uh, uh, and uh, heavy metal music and that sort that sort of environment and uh, my very uh, uh, immediate intuition was to uh, help them grow in Christ and so I've been involved in discipleship since I was about fourteen or fifteen in uh, this sort of informal way journeying with friends, but even more formally having home groups and that sort of thing. Mm, wonderful. And uh, you are married, a family? 
I am married uh, to Nadia, uh, my wife, and we have two children, uh, Mia, who's uh, 11, and Alex, who's nine. Martin, you're also a Langham scholar. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, when you did your doctoral studies, when and where, and in what subject? Yes, uh, I had just completed a bachelor's degree in theology in Beirut uh, in 1996. And uh, I went uh, straight from there to uh, the University of Oxford in the UK. I did an MPhil in Eastern Christian Studies, so uh, patristics, uh, focusing in particular on Greek and Syriac fathers. Uh, and then uh, I, from these two years, I went into the DPhil or PhD program at the University of Oxford, where I worked on the history of uh, Christian-Muslim relations. And particularly, I looked at the way that uh, uh, Muslims had used and interpreted the text of the four Gospels in their engagement with Christians between the 8th and the 14th centuries. Um, I was a Langham scholar during the last two years of my five years in uh, in Oxford. Uh, I had uh, uh, struggled to uh, make ends meet and uh, with uh, great support from my father uh, initially. And then uh, he uh, uh, actually, John Stott was visiting Beirut and uh, uh, had uh, uh, was in a meeting where my father also was present and he asked about my father's family and my father mentioned that his son was uh, working on a on a phd in oxford and he said well who's paying for his study he said well nobody really and we're having a bit of a hard time and uncle john said please let him apply and um, yes and that's how i was able to continue the last two years on a langham scholarship for which i'm very very grateful mm -hmm. I was able to do a little bit less of uh, of serving in cafes and uh, night portering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's so wonderful to hear that about uh, John Stott. I mean, he he so often identified people who he was able to invest in through the Langham Scholar Program, and I'm so glad he found you through your father. That's that's great. I I, I had not known that before, so that's 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 good news to hear. Well, I think it's time to, to, to go to Lebanon itself uh, and, and to take us there. And, of course, it's not only a very beautiful country, as I said, it is also an ancient country. I mean, going back even way beyond uh, the times of biblical Israel, um, I, I've been to Byblos, there, that very ancient city, and there are remains there of civilization going right back at least to 5000 BC of continuous uh, uh, habitation, which is quite a remarkable fact uh, as well as all the other uh, areas of, of Lebanon's uh, history. Tell us a bit about your country in general. I mean, obviously, we will want to talk about the present situation, the current crisis. But in terms of Lebanon as a culture uh, and what you love about your own country and why you, you stay there and all those kind of things, just tell us a bit about Lebanon as a place and as a country. Mm. Well, I've heard many uh, foreigners speak about the Lebanese bug, you know, getting the Lebanese bug. Once you've been there once, it's hard mm -hmm. uh, not to go back. If you mm -hmm. live there for a while, you're wanting to go back and live there. Uh, you mentioned already the, the cedars. You mentioned the good wine. On a, on a different, in a different time, you and I would be uh, having a glass of wine and a, 
good uh, meal of uh, of Lebanese meza in a, in a little restaurant Stop. in the mountain. You're making me hungry and thirsty. <laughs> You're absolutely right. We would. <laughs> Lebanon is famous for its uh, food. Of course, uh, worldwide Lebanese restaurants are uh, are very famous, and uh, people go there to get good food. Um, it's also a country of contrasts, and so uh, I actually uh, lived through my most formative years through the Lebanese Civil War that began in 1975 and uh, and ended in 1990, or did it end, uh, one would have to ask, because Lebanon mm -hmm. has not known um, many years of uh, peace at all. Uh, we're a country that uh, has uh, wonderful natural beauty, but we're also a country with great uh, diversity, uh, primarily uh, diversity in religious affiliation, and uh, what uh, we would call uh, the perspective of uh, of political science, a sectarian or so, so sociology as well, a sectarian system. So uh, we have a sectarian, sectarianized, sectarianized society. So we're, we're uh, you know, in in most of the Arab world, you have a society that's shaped around tribal. Uh, it, it's a tribal system, and uh, people's identities are very much affiliated to the tribe. In Lebanon, our tribe is the sect. And uh, even though people would not say I am from this tribe or that tribe, although families, large families, uh, even ancient feudal families from the Ottoman era uh, are quite common. But more importantly, uh, most Lebanese would refer to themselves as a Sunni, Shia, a Druze, a Maronite, an Orthodox, uh, before referring to themselves as a Lebanese, and mm. that is an, the essential part of our problem. Mm. We don't have a, a clear sense of national identity, a common sense or a sense of a common good. We look after the good of our community, our sectarian tribe, before uh, thinking about the common good. And uh, that has been uh, at the root of a lot of our conflicts in our history. Mm. Uh, so, and Personally, having grown up in this sort of environment and having grown up in a civil war that was often, um, you know, uh, fought along sectarian religious lines, my experience of religion has been very mixed. And so I have a bit of a love-hate relationship toward religion. Mm. Uh, I have experienced the lethal, deadly dimension of religion. Uh, as well as experienced the saving grace and the uh, complete transformation and redemptive power of the cross and of uh, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And for, for me, this has meant that even in my own writing today or in my thinking, my teaching, I very much like to distinguish between faith and Christ on one hand and Christianity, Islam, or any other religion on the other. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, for me, that's very important. Mm. Uh, religion kills. Religion make, creates fanatics. Yeah. Uh, faith in Christ liberates, it is inclusive, it is inviting. That's so Sorry, true. we went from, uh, no, from Lebanon to theology quite yeah, no, quickly. That's fine, that's fine. We, and we can come back there too. <laughs> 
I mean, one of the things that people uh, who are not familiar with that part of the world may not realise is, although you say there are so many sects and groups within Lebanon, it is actually a very small country. I mean, it's it's only, I gather, about two-thirds the size of Connecticut in US terms. Uh, it's smaller than Wales in, in British terms, uh, and it has a population of a just something under 7 million, I think, at the moment. Um, and we need also, of course, to come to these the reality of the current crises that are there, which, uh, as you say, that maybe the, that war never quite ended. But the war then, of course, uh, emerged in Syria right next door, uh, producing within Lebanon, I gather at the moment, approximately 1.5 million Syrian refugees, which is equivalent mm-hmm. to about a quarter of the population. Uh, It's the largest per capita population of refugees, I believe, in the world, in any country. Uh, And I try to imagine that because if it were here in Britain, that would mean that we had something like 17 million refugees in our country if we had a quarter of our own population. So this this is a reality which clearly is is a part of Lebanese uh, situation at the moment. Added to which then, of course, came the October Revolution in 2019. Now, as it happens, a number of us from the Langham Partnership were there at that time. Uh, We had our leadership team and our international council there at ABTS in Beirut in October 2019. And I remember a number of us went out on the streets uh, with the crowds who were, you know, waving flags and calling Stara, Stara, you know. Um, and, And there was an air of one might call almost hopeful expectancy in that Um which, on the one hand, I find very you know cheering and encouraging that something was, and yet within me there was this fear that these things so often uh, can start well and then go bad, and we've seen that also in other places of the Arab Spring. And so I wonder if you could perhaps bring us up to date. You know what has happened since those heady days of October 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well. As you mentioned, you know, in Syria, uh, the uprising uh, in 2011 began with uh, as peaceful demonstrations, and we just uh, commemorated the 10th anniversary. Uh, and uh, uh, but very quickly, uh, they uh, just uh, derived into chaos. And uh, the Arab Spring in different parts of the Middle East, North Africa region uh, has basically dislodged uh, decades uh, in power dictators. Uh, in Lebanon, we have a very this very complex sectarian system that we uh, just uh, referred to earlier, and uh, it means that there is no clear enemy. There is no clear uh, you. you you know, there's not one dicta- dictatorial power that you're trying to get rid of. Uh, Lebanon has 18 officially recognized uh, different sects or uh, religious denominations, uh, all of them Christian and Muslim, but uh, uh, all of them represented in parliament. And uh, we look in the mirror and the enemy is us. We have to be dislodged. And mm-hmm. that's that's what makes it both very difficult because you don't know what you're trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And, but it also puts us in front of, of the reality that uh, there is a collective responsibility that's on us with regard to uh, the terrible situation that we are in. 
Lebanon is also a democratic system. Our parliament uh, members, we have elected. Uh, then they have elected the president. They have uh, chosen uh, a prime minister. The, the, they have formed the government, but the people is behind the general elections. And so it's very hard to find anybody to blame, which, which makes it very difficult. It's easier if we can blame someone, if there's someone to bring down, yeah. somebody's had to, to chop off. You know? yeah, yeah. But, uh, so it, the, 19, uh, the 2019 uh, October 17 revolution um, that started in Lebanon was very exciting. Now, having myself participated at least in two earlier uh, revolutions, I know that what you hope to achieve is very rarely achieved in the long run. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the 2005, what we called the Cedar Revolution, is basically the revolution that, uh, that drove the Syrian military presence out of Lebanon, but then brought back two of the key uh, militia leaders from the civil war period, uh, one that was had been imprisoned, the other who was in exile, and uh, it put back in power uh, all of the, the warlords from the civil war period who had been kind of tamed by the Syrian presence for the past 15 years. And suddenly in 2005, after the assassination of Prime Minister Hariri, and everyone, you know, went into the streets. But basically, we placed back those people in power. Mm -hmm. And then instead of knowing who it was who was abusing the country, now it, was, it went completely out of hand. And we have a group of, uh, of warlords that became uh, blue-collar, uh, you know, militia men <laughs> yeah. with uh, a whole uh, the administrative structure of Lebanon being transformed into their uh, blue collar militia and uh, you know it wasn't with weapons but it's deep state corruption it's uh, the complete if you'll excuse the word but a raping of the country a mm. raping of uh, everything of all the institutions mm. and so in 2019 on 17 October there was a sense of being really getting fed up of this, uh, a beginning of uh, the collapse of the economy, um, a sense that we were going nowhere and people rallying against, uh, 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 rallying together around the idea, uh, around anti-sectarianism and uh, saying, we do not want anymore the sectarian system. We want to get rid of this corruption. One of the main slogan was killon yani killon, which means everybody means everybody mm -hmm. and so that was a an outcry against all of the political uh, class elite mm -hmm. the problem is that these hundreds of thousands that went into the streets maybe the first few weeks gradually uh, got tired because uh, nothing was moving uh, things became stagnant so I think that the core of, of those who really were the revolution of October 17 began to retreat. And what you have is a party um, um, allies or party um, 
you know, people who have allegiance to the traditional parties filled that vacuum. And then you started to have sectarianized uprisings. And so every region of Lebanon had its own uh, uh, types of, uh, of uh, revolutionaries. So you had Christian revolutionaries in one place and Druze revolutionaries in another and Sunni revolutionaries and Shiite revolutionaries and different Maronite groups of the Christian community that support different warlords. And, and so uh, uh, the revolution really became very, uh, very, very uh, um, diluted and and then of course uh, the COVID nineteen crisis emerged, mm -hmm. which also changed the revolution further. Uh, and then we had the terrible uh, bomb explosion uh, explosion at the at the port, uh, the Beirut port, the explosion on the fourth of August of twenty twenty, mm -hmm. that devastated half of Beirut. Uh, really uh, became like a war zone, mm -hmm. uh, and the economy that further uh got uh, you know completely destroyed and so uh, a year ago uh the lebanese lira or the lebanese pound was worth $1500 yesterday it reached 15000 mm. 15000 lebanese pounds to the dollar yeah so yeah. uh meanwhile most people are still earning uh, the same if that's if they've been able to keep their job or they've had salary cuts whereas the market the price of things on the market has at least quadrupled mm. in fact yesterday uh, most supermarkets ended up shutting down and petrol stations because they didn't know anymore at what price to sell things mm. and they were having uh, they were having uh, you know basically uh, things were getting completely out of hand within the shops and people getting angry. They just closed their doors uh, until things stabilize. So, and, and there is no end in sight, Chris. I think yeah. that's the difficult thing and yeah. it's getting worse and worse. Yeah, that is the difficult thing because without hope, you know, um, the, one can't see a future. And, and, and for younger people, especially, hope for the future is, is one thing that motivates. And so to have a country in that sort of a state must be terribly, terribly depressing. In fact, I think um, for any who are listening to this podcast, the one thing we could say, please pray for Lebanon. Please pray that God will yeah. find some way through this morass, this chaos, um, to, to bring uh, a, at least order and justice back in some way to the country. It's, it's almost impossible to see how, so it's why it can only be a matter of prayer. You know, for the past few uh, months, I've, I have said, you know, I feel completely helpless, but mm. not hopeless. Yeah. But to be honest, I feel increasingly uh, that it's, I, I can't see where the solution will come from. And that really is more in the area of hope. Yeah. And, uh, and what we really need prayer. Yeah. Well, let's pray indeed for that. I wonder, you, you have mentioned several times some of the names like Sunni, Shia, Maronite, Druze, and so on. 
I wonder if you could just briefly help us to get a better sense of that religious makeup of Lebanon. I mean, for example, one thing that many people aren't aware of is the strength, historically the strength of the Christian presence in Lebanon, that it once at least was a country where something like 25% of the population had a Christian allegiance. I think that has changed recently. But can you just help us to understand something of these groupings and what's the difference, for example, between Sunni and Shia uh, within the Islamic context? Just just briefly to help people get a, some heads around these words. Actually, right now, the population is about 35% Christian. So really? we still have 5% of the population that's Christian. Mm-hmm. But even when Lebanon uh, got its independence from uh, being under French mandate in 1943, uh, the population was slightly uh, majority Christian, so about 51% Christian population. Mm. Uh, but that even came in about 1920. We just celebrated uh, the 100th anniversary of what is referred to as, uh, well, last year, not just, but in 2020, um, of uh, the great La- Greater Lebanon. And Greater Lebanon was a, a geopolitical reality that was created under the sponsorship of the French uh, by request of the Maronites in Lebanon. Now, before 1920, there had always been for centuries something referred to as Greater Lebanon, uh, which was basically consisted of uh, some parts of the coast uh, of the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, and uh, two mountain ranges, the, the Western mountain range and the Eastern mountain range, and then the Bekaa Valley in between, which is very fertile soil, and then Syria behind. Now, Greater Lebanon was primarily this Western mi- mountain chain and some cities on the, on the coast, uh, which were, so it was majority, great majority Maronite Christians, primarily Christian populations. And in 1920, uh, after a great famine, uh, after the First World War, uh, the, uh, the the Christians basically went to the French and said, you know, we, we want a state, but we cannot establish a state with the current ge- geographic uh, area that we have. We need more fertile land in the north and the south, further east in the Bekaa. So Baalbek was not part of Greater Lebanon, uh, was not part of, pre, uh, of, of, uh, of Mount Lebanon, but... So in the 1920 agreement added areas like Valbach and the Fertile Valley and then south and north and some cities, even uh, Tyre and Sidon, and Greater Lebanon was created. Now that create, that brought in a very large population of Shiite uh, Muslims in particular. Uh, so the Christians wanting to, to create a, a more uh, manageable geopolitical reality created a sectarian problem, a, diver- a religious diversity uh, situation. Now, it doesn't have to be a problem, uh, but it became a, a huge challenge as every sect started to have its own interpretation of its identity and who we are as Lebanese. Uh, we are still struggling with this, and frankly, that is the background to where we are today. So when, uh, when the Lebanese constitution was uh, was established, was uh, written. Uh, Christians and Muslims in Lebanon came together and agreed that they would have a shared power system where the Christians would have slightly more uh, uh, representation 
in the Lebanese political system, but they had a oral agreement, what they refer to as a gentleman agreement, it's not written nowhere in the constitution, that the Lebanese president, the president of the Lebanese Republic would be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister would be a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of parliament would be a Shiite Muslim. And for throughout our history, since independence until today, that has almost always been the case. Mm. Uh, there was a bit of a change in 1989 with what is referred to as the Ta'if Agreement, which uh, helped bring the end of the civil war, where basically uh, uh, executive power was shifted more to the prime minister, to the Sunni prime minister. This is how the uh, tension was able to be resolved for a while, because the president, the Maronite president before that, had uh, a very a lot of executive power, almost like the U.S. president. Whereas now he's more, uh, he's got veto power, but much less executive power. Mm. The executive power is the hand of the Sunni. Now, in terms of these terms, um, the the Sunnis uh, represent about 85% of the global Muslim population. Uh, they are what are often referred to as the Orthodox Muslims. Of course, you are Orthodox when you are the majority and call the others unorthodox. <laughs> yes. but, um, so they are the majority. Uh, the Shiites have never been in power except for very few periods in history, like the Fatimid Ismaili Shiites in Egypt uh, in, uh, in the uh, 11th, 12th century. Uh, and, uh, and then later, uh, Shiite, uh, some Shiite power in the region of Iran. But the Shiites have always felt like the underdog historically, and they've developed a theology of suffering along the lines of some of their major central figures like uh, Imam Ali and his son Hussein um, that are seen as persecuted, uh, uh, oppressed. Uh, now, what that means is that uh, the when it's very important to understand the background of the Iranian revolution, because in the late 70s, when the Iranian revolution happened, this was one of the first times in history when the Shiites really, and a particular brand of Shiism, so uh, Twelver Shiism, came to power. And, uh, and it, it was really not part of their theology to have political power. So what Khomeini did is that he uh, developed a new doctrine referred to as Wilayat al-Faqih, the rule of the jurist, where the jurist and the political leader became one and the same, and uh, had enormous power. And and uh, so in Lebanon, Lebanon then became inspired by this uh, version of Shiism. And today, for instance, the group uh, Hezbollah is inspired by the same doctrine and is very much attached to Iran with mm -hmm. that uh, ideology. Uh, the Sunnis of Lebanon also, there is a diversity, for instance, if the urban Sunnis are uh, um, much, you know, you'd see an urban Sunni and an urban Christian in Lebanon and you wouldn't know the difference. If you go further to some, uh, uh, you know, uh, rural areas or even in, non, in cities outside Beirut, like Tripoli in the north or Saida in the south, then you'll have a little bit more... Uh, um, let me say, a strong attachment to a literal, a literal application of religion. So 
you'll find a more traditional dress and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. In the Christian community, the Maronites that were the dominant population through most of our history derive from uh, a uh, Aramaic-speaking tradition of Christianity. And Aramaic is the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they, the Maronites uh, became affiliated to the Church of Rome uh, during the medieval period. And so altogether, sometimes is referred to as the Catholic Church, but they still have an Eastern uh, right, uh, although they are uh, administratively or structurally uh, affiliated to Rome with an independent patriarch in Lebanon. But the patriarch of Lebanon is quite often also uh, a cardinal uh, in the Vatican, mm. uh, as is the current one and the previous patriarch. That's a little bit, uh, but there are, as I said, 18 officially recognized sects in Lebanon. Only five of them, I believe, are Muslim and Druze. Uh, Druze is another branch which uh, would take too long to explain. Yeah. But basically, you have about 12 or 13 Christian uh, <laughs> groups between Orthodox and Maronite and Catholic uh, affiliated to Rome during the, the medieval uh, Latin missions. And, uh, and then the Protestants came in. Uh, in the 19th century as well and mm. established a lot of education and health uh, initiatives and, and schools and so on. Yeah, that's very helpful. Now, thinking of the Christian community again, uh, we want to come to the, uh, to, to the is Islam a little bit later, but thinking of the Christian church, you, you once wrote a blog uh, entitled The Church of the Middle East is on Life Support. Lessons for the Global Body of Christ. And I just wonder if you could expand a little bit what you said in that and what are the major challenges that are facing the Christian Church, not just in Lebanon, but in the whole region of the Middle East and North Africa as, as you look to the future. Yes, this was uh, a blog actually that I wrote in 2015. And uh, uh, so that was really at... Uh, uh, the end of uh, the initial uh, wave of the Arab Spring, but at the heart of, uh, of the Syrian crisis and war. Um, and I was reflecting a little bit on, uh, on um, how do we do education of uh, leaders for the church uh, in a situation like that. And... Um, I had referred to three major um, uh, challenges that uh, one faces when uh, uh, teaching uh, in a theological seminary, but also that's a problem that we have within our churches. And the first one was uh, the very strong negative feelings and ideas that uh, people have about Islam. And I want to extend that actually beyond the seminary to it's, it has become a bit of a global reality, and uh, uh, not least uh, among evangelical churches globally. And so I think this is quite relevant to uh, our audience today. So, so these very high levels of negative feelings and ideas about Islam. A second great challenge is that uh, Christianity in the Middle East, the, at least the visible uh, organized uh, religion in the Middle East is really on its way out. Uh, the numbers have dwindled so dramatically over the past decade that it is really 
very sad, and we don't know where we are heading with that. If not from direct persecution, then because of economic pressure and the desire just to leave. And uh, the pressure for us as Christians to leave, not just for Christians, but for Muslims as well today in a situation like Lebanon with the economic crisis, the, the pressure to leave is tremendous. Yeah. It so happens that so many Christians have links to the outside, and so the temptation to leave is even stronger. And so you ask yourself, you know, do I really want to be a martyr uh, for what, you know, what am I, uh, what am, why am I still here, yeah. you know, what am I, what decisions am I taking that will have consequences on my children and so yeah. on. Uh, so what, but, and then the third challenge is uh, the, here, it's not the challenge in the negative sense, but the reality is that as evangelicals, we are attached very strongly to evangelism as an expression of our faith. And so when we live in a Muslim context, uh, what does that mean? And how, how do we revisit some of the things we've inherited from missionaries when we are a population that needs to continue to live within that context? And what does it mean to be witnesses to the gospel? Mm. So these are... Three big challenges that uh, I try to. Could you help us to answer that last question? Because you know we are thinking here about being on mission, in a in its broadest possible sense. So, for you and for your colleagues there in Beirut and for for uh, evangelical Protestant Christian leaders, what what can what can mission look like? What, What does it mean to be, in a sense, participating in the mission of God? in a context such as you live in? Well, I think, first of all, we need to think far more holistically and comprehensively about the mission of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the evangelism we do uh, in our churches, I call sniping. We, uh, you know, we're hiding behind a wall and (laughs) I have these images from my childhood growing up in the civil war, you know, and you have someone behind the wall and uh, sniping individuals one by one. Mm. Uh, and our evangelism, sadly, is often like that, you know. And usually our victims will be, uh, you know, young men quite often who are looking for, uh, you know, a way of uh, creating a better future for themselves. Or if it's a missionary, they think it will get them a visa to, to the West or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh what we need is a much more holistic understanding of the function of the church, of the mission of the church. You know, if we are carrying out the mission of God, and uh, of course you are an authority and a teacher in this area, the mission day, then uh, we we want to carry out God's mission also holistically in our societies. And so the the, the role of the church is actually to transform society. Uh, not only to uh, go out and preach to one or two people and the rest of the time to take care of its own business within the walls of the church, but how is the church present in society in a way that transforms? Sometimes even there we think transformation is, you know, doing an educational project or doing a health project or handing out food parcels or so on, but it's far more than that. You know, I think of you know, Nelson Mandela's understanding of what mission of God was for South Africa. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. and what he thought the mission of God was for America uh, in a racist system. And I think what is the role of the church in Lebanon in a system that is so sectarian, so conflictual, 
that you know it's impossible to get out of this constant uh, conflict and war and violence and i think that we as a as a church in this country we need to bring healing to the violence it's an comprehensively violent system. We're violent against each other. We're violent against, against the environment. We're violent against uh, even architecture and our heritage. We're violent, uh, you know, against uh, each other in everyday life. And uh, uh, the church has virtually said nothing to that, has virtually done nothing uh, to address that. And I think that we are missing uh, something significant when we so, don't do that. Two things there. One is, uh, yes, if mission is holistic, then at one level it doesn't rule out the way in which churches can respond with love and compassion and practical care for the needy. And uh, I've, I've heard remarkable stories of how churches in Lebanon have reached out to Syrian refugees uh, in, in, in ways which have shown something of the love of Jesus and also commended the gospel without being explicitly evangelistic, but have simply shown this is, this is what Christians do because we're followers of Jesus. And, and I presume that you're uh, saying, yes, that's a good thing, but the church ought to be going beyond that in terms of engagement in the issues, political and social and economic, uh, in a country through their thinking and their advocacy and, and their, their, their action and so on. Is uh, your seminary, ABTS, in what way, if at all, are you involved in any of that or encouraging your students to be involved in those more deeply engaged ways in society? Yeah, and I want to say, to confirm what you just said, you know, I think the mission of God is not either or, it's both and. So... We don't have to choose. We're not asked to choose between evangelism and peace building. Mm. We are called to do both. And uh, I think this is the witness of the church in Christ. Uh, as a seminary, uh, we have uh, completely transformed our curriculum over the, uh, the past few years to become much more, you know, we, uh, we, we begin by uh, teaching or we teach our students to begin by analyzing, by identifying the challenges in the society, things that are holding uh, the church back, but the things that are holding society back and the role of the church in that reality. And then to explore what the Bible has to say about it and what history has to say about it. And, uh, and so we uh, try really to work on developing uh, holistic thinking uh, ministers of the gospel uh, that uh, uh, graduate from, from ABTS. Uh, the initiative, the Institute of Middle East Studies that uh, I started in 2013 and led for 17 years, uh, very much was about finding new ways of engaging with our Muslim reality as well. And uh, uh, that had a lot to do with changing the way that we think and understand Islam. So going through a personal paradigm shift about the meaning of religion and uh, the perception of the other before even uh, thinking about how do we, uh, how can we be witnesses. That's it for today's episode. Join us next week for part two. 
when Chris and Martin touch on some misconceptions Christians and Muslims may have about one another, best practices for healthy dialogue with those whose beliefs differ from our own, and what we can learn from our Lebanese brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.